Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jonathan Walton. In his new book, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive, he exposes cultural myths and misconceptions about America's identity, showing how American ideology has become what he thinks is a false religion and how American notions of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are at odds with the Christian's call to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Jonathan Walton. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's, it's nice to be on sabbatical, but have these like little jump-ins to, to talk about writing and um the book, which really was a big portion of the last few years. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. And I'll tell you, the book is not short on provocative for a title, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive and the Truth That Sets Us Free. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. You, you grew up in Virginia mm-hmm. in a kind of traditional African, African-American church setting, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And you went to Columbia and got involved in InterVarsity, Columbia University in New York, Yes. And you tell this story. You 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 came to really people started asking you, are you reformed? Do you re- listen to read Tim Keller? Do, they kind of it, it sounds like these are probably people that are mostly it sounds like white or Asian that are in this kind of kind of evangelical culture in New York. And and, yes. and, and you wound up like looking with suspicion almost on, on what you had received in your Christian formation as a kid. I mean, that was, what was that experience like? Well, I think um, the more that I talk with people um, and particularly about that transition, the transition from a rural to an urban set- setting or a, a socially acceptable, uneducated session, it's a place to a, you know, a more educated, like upper quote unquote elite place. Um, there's, I think there's a country mouse, city mouse thing that happens to a lot of people. Um, and I'm grateful that um, I was able to, to learn and not compl- and not just, and not dismiss where I came from. Um, I think that there was a, just a story about one woman. I was in Peebles, which is a, the lo- the only department store in the town that I come from. <laughs> and, um, she she looked lost. She's probably about 70 years old when I was a teenager. And I said, hey, you know, are you finding everything okay? And she said, I left here during the Great Migration and I haven't been back in 40 years. And so, wow. and so I think what happens a lot of the time is people like me, we leave where we come from and then we just don't go back. Or if we go back, there is that level of suspicion. There is that level of like questioning of like, did, did, is what I learned good enough. Um, and growing up, like that was the story that I was told, like the SAT scores south of Richmond are 800, 900 scores lower, points lower than Northern Virginia. The SOLs are going to be no problem for Fairfax County. People in my graduating class, very few people got a diploma, right? So there's a there's just this dichotomy that exists. And crossing that river, I think it's hard to see both groups as valuable. And I really didn't didn't have that that equality happen until my mom died and I had to really 
like reconcile with what did I think about the people and where I came from and stuff like that. Yeah. It's interesting too. In, in, in addition to like all the racial tension and antagonism we have in, in America, which you talk about in detail in your book, we also have this, I mean, Hillary Clinton won one sixth of the counties of, of in 2016. Trump won five sixths, right? Like, we're, we're mm-hmm. like, eight, like 80% or so. But that one sixth has something like 67% of the GDP. So like, yep. it's just so w- crazy that like so much of the country's resources are focused yes. in just a, a, a sliver of the sort of metro kind of blue state, often coastal. So mm-hmm. even if it's in a red state, it's sort of, it's often a kind of, blue or purplish enclave and then the rest right. of the country is sort of cut off from a lot of what we consider is like all of our prosperity yeah i mean i think it's uh, in our emotionally healthy activism course we try to take um because this book is kind of like the precursor to starting a conversation right and so we finished the emotionally healthy activist course and one of the first things we talk about is turning categories for like um basically the social categories we have that create the walls that we build um, to categories for curiosity. So the acronym is like send peace. So sexuality, education, nationality, deity, political ideology, um, ethnicity, age, class, and then um, experiences. And so if, if, if I can ask a question immediately, as opposed to walking and acting out of my assumption, then that changes the conversation. So, because most of us live in um, segregated societies in some way. So, for example, the building that I live in um, or the, the neighborhood I'm in is a quote unquote racially, by, it's diverse by racial assignment and ethnic identity. It's the most diverse zip code in the United States. That's where I live. But it's not politically diverse. Um, AOC is my representative, right? Um, so I'm not going to have regular conversations with people um, that disagree with me about climate change. But I am going to argue with the elderly people in my building about composting because they don't understand taking care of the environment. I am going to have conversations about gentrification because our neighborhood is changing as a Dunkin' Donuts comes and Chipotle comes and Starbucks will be here in a couple of years, right? Um, those that That's a different conversation. But we need to be able to have conversations across difference and our country was not built to have conversations across difference. It was actually built to reinforce them, and we're doing that right now over and over again. Yeah, you talk about in the book how when you, you married uh, your wife, who she was part of this, of this kind of intervarsity fellowship, right? And she was, mm-hmm. she's Asian-American. Right. And you said, you know, that she was more able to interrogate herself and, and look at her prejudice than you were. And, and so yeah. this is really interesting because you say that, like, you were afraid of being looked at as the angry black male. Right. right. And so you kind of suppressed some of your honest questions mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So, and, but you talk about in December, 2016, right. that, that changed for you. Can you talk about that experience of, 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 of why that was significant in your journey? Man, that was a hard, a really, really hard conversation. <laughs> um, and I, I write about it. Um, and one of the things that I, I don't know if I said it this succinctly in the book, but my wife went to an ethnic-specific church. I went to a racially assigned church. A very different thing. So Priscilla grew up Chinese and Korean in Jamaica, Queens and Hollis Hills. And she grew up going to a Chinese church, like 
Watchman Nee, amazing missionary theologian, witness was his um, mentee. They planted the church and my wife goes to. They don't celebrate Christmas. They don't celebrate Easter. My question, when I asked them that, they would say, oh, every day is resurrection. What are you talking about? Like it, it's it's a fundamentally different way of growing up, um, and it's distinctly Chinese. So when she, her identity may have been torn down at the 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 predominantly white and Jewish elementary school that she went to, they got built up at her home. It got built up every Friday night. It got built up like, and there was an opting into that community. Whereas where when, where I grew up, um, our churches were overseen by white plantation owners, and then you know the church became. Um, a church on the land where the plantation was, and um, there's there's just a level of suspicion for anybody outside of our community. Um, and I remember people who were quote unquote not black coming to the church, and it's being the most awkward thing ever. Um, and I think I wish that I was not raised with the level of suspicion that comes from difference, um, but learned how to rigorously engage like my wife did. And so what I had to repent of towards her and her community was the inherent suspicion that I was raised with that I needed to own um, because it was deeply toxic in the relationships that I was attempting to build um, with peers that I had. But I had never acknowledged the, the pain, the suffering, the struggle, and the reflection of that back towards the Chinese and Korean community, even though I was married to someone who was Chinese and Korean, you know? Uh, that, that's incredibly powerful. I wonder how that changed your relationship. Well, it made it a lot more honest because I, Priscilla, I mean, I think Jesus was like trying to send me this like Trojan horse for discipleship wrapped in a really beautiful woman. Um, <laughs> so, oh, that we all, oh, that everyone would get that, that Trojan horse, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, when, when you're a pastor or a speaker or a leader or talented, you can hide a lot of things. Um, but when you get married, you can't hide everything. Like they're in your space, you know, like. The first time she told me, she was like, Jonathan, you know your jeans smell. Like, what are you <laughs> like, what? You know? Um, and so one day, very early on in our marriage, she said, Jonathan, you know, I don't I don't really think you want to get to know my friend. I was like, What are you like, what are you talking about? She's like, You don't ask, hang out with them, you don't have follow-up questions. Like, I wonder if you're judging them or you think they're judging you. And I was like, nah, I'm like, I'm not ready to have that conversation, you know? Um, but as I was pressed, especially when um, you know, Post Ferguson, post Eric Garner, like in New York City, like tense conversations about race, tense conversations about class. Um, and we were in our kitchen one day, you know, we were trying to, to have a kid. And she's like, Jonathan, you know, when we have a child, like you need to really figure out what it means for you to be black in a healthy way. And then she just walked away. I was like, I was making eggs. What do we do? <laughs> you know, um, and for someone not black to say that to you is pretty. I mean, that's that's bold. Uh, it, 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 it's it's got to be it, just emotionally. That's I mean, that just sounds like a very intense experience. It was it was disorienting. But we we actually we have. She's an eight on the enneagram, so she has. No I, I know she's the challenger. She, yeah. what, what are you on the enneagram? I'm a by three. The There's a three. A, it's a volatile structure <laughs> so, so do you know exactly man how many copies your book has sold i mean are you looking like a three i have in the no enneagram? idea but i know <laughs> it is, i know it is ranked on amazon right now all right there you go there you go I, there you go all right this is for anybody who's listeners who don't know the enneagram is sort of a personality test based on kind of young archetypes and for some people they don't like it you either love it or you don't i'm a, I'm a devotee i love it but I'll, I'll take the categories and that can help me like that i'll take any assignment and processing tool i can get um 
but yeah, I think we, me and Priscilla had this conversation um, with some of her other friends around race. And we were the, all five couple or four or five couples were uh, multiracial, but we were the only couple that was two quote unquote minorities, right? And most of the people were white and something else. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so it's a fundamentally different conversation when someone who's not white says, hey, you, I think you really need to work out what it means to be black. Now, my wife also has a significant amount of credibility because like, she has built significant ties within in inner city Baltimore, in the South Bronx, in West Harlem. Like The context that she grew up in, the way that she communicates, there's a deep trust to be able to say that. Obviously, anybody else who said that, I'd be pissed off and they need to get out of my face, right? Um, but my wife was telling me that so that the legacy of who I am would be passed on to my, da- my daughter now um, and not the legacy of what was given to me by our culture. Um, so there was, a, there was a well that that conversation came from, not just a raindrop, if that, if that makes sense. Um, still disorienting as all get out, but not, not painful, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, that, that's well said. And it's interesting because it sounds like you kind of went through this journey where you sort of embraced a lot of this kind of a kind of white evangelical reformed kind of, you know, this the, the this group of people that, you know, the the blogs, the this, the that. It sounds like for a while you're sort of, okay, if this is the university scene, this is what we do. Right. And then you, you realize, like, okay, wait. And then it, you tell this powerful story about a, a speaker from university, actually, that helped you see just how sort of kind of biased that stuff was. It sounds like some privilege. Oh, actually, man. It, 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 you, were, you were like, wow, okay, here's someone giving me permission to really challenge these, these things that people are sort of saying, well, this is the, the you know, the Christian mafia you've got to orient with if you're really going to be a Christian in, in Columbia at university. Right. Well, I think that was a, the, probably the most significant discipleship experience when I was a student. And of my friends who read and for our the- listeners who aren't relig- overly religious or Christian discipleship, you just mean kind of like where people are saying, "Hey, here's an intentional mentoring and how to follow Jesus and yeah, so, and, and, and grow in faith and and things yeah, like that." I like to think of it as like your your ideological diet, right? Like, what do you eat every day? Who's like, what meals are you having? Like, who are the gurus that you're talking with? And my diet consisted of predominantly white, wealthy well-connected evangelicals for four years. Um, And coming from a diet that was predominantly rural, poor, and, you know, black, that's a, it's it's a different palette, right? So, and I, and I use diet specifically because the first time that I had soup, like butternut squash soup was when I was 18 years old. And I thought it was like sauce on the table that everybody got. I was really confused. I'd never had like a fresh salad, like spinach and like all these things. Like it just wasn't not part of my deal, right? Um, and so Tim Keller was just as foreign. John Piper, just as foreign. Um, but it, it, I am, because of the way that I was raised was cultured to sit down and listen to lectures, cultured to like process ideas. Like I love intellectualizing things. I have to talk about pain, right? So it's just like I, I could do that dance. But this speaker, um, something that was jarring was she had us, you know, divided into groups. And my best friend was on the opposite side of the room. You know, I'm from rural Southern Virginia. He's from South Florida, but went to um, a private school in Connecticut. Um, and we were on the opposite side of the room. We made eye contact. And that was the first time we had been put in situations like that. 
you know, he's racially assigned white, I'm racially assigned black, but we've been friends and sweet mates like all four years of college, right? Um, and so that reality gave me permission to engage, but also I think gave him permission to engage. And I had someone who was willing and able to do that. Um, and I also had people who refused to do that, which created the the space for um, necessary conflict. Because I don't think conflict is good or bad. I think conflict is necessary uh, or there's unnecessary and necessary conflict. And this was a necessary one. And um, I was grateful for that, um, especially that community of people that I was around because we engaged for the most part. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. You you talk about white American folk religion. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. oftentimes uh, what, what great religious traditions do, right? Ones that are become worldwide and, and global is they, they sort of lift people above their, their, the kind of uh, base sort of local geography or, you know, they, they tend to, they, they tend to be different than kind of the Greek gods or something, right? Like, right. They, you know, they tend to look, they more transcendent than just, mm-hmm. you know, worshiping yourself kind of thing. But then right. what often happens is often religions devolve back into folk religions, back into yeah. kind of, so, so even though you, 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 you think you're worship worshiping in traditional Catholic or Hindu or this. It's it's a lot of it becomes mixed in with a lot of folk religion and, and yeah. just cult, kind of cultural ideology, and it just sort of reflects it, rather than be transcendent and sort of offer some critique and transcendence. It often just mirrors the the the, the kind yes. of disposition of the people. And you say that, that America is no different in this regard. That you that we have a kind of white folk religion that that's sort of, you know, because whites have been the majority and power holders that, that oftentimes, you know, and, and the reason why these things work so well usually is that they're, they're, they're neatly disguised and packaged, right? I mean, you right. still use the traditional religious ideology to some degree, but you blend it in with, with the self-interest to kind of the, the in-group and, and, you know, the, the sort of, you know, uh, myths of the people. And, and you said that a lot of, that we're living a lot of mythologies. Uh, yes. Uh, it's interesting. You you talk about how you know one thing that Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, and Obama all have in common is they all said America is the great hope for the world. And, and right. you're like, as I think critically, as a, no Christian should ever say America is the great. But American right. Christians love that kind of language, right? Oh, it, absolutely. It, it tickles the ear, Democrat or Republican. It really tickles the American ear, right? Right, right. And I so I think what Catholicism gets right is confession, like regular going in and and confessing. That I am, I am broken, and not just I'm broken generally. I looked at pornography. Forgive me, God, for exploiting other women and violating. I cheated on my taxes. I did. Like like you're bringing these things regularly. Like I am greedy. Like I don't actually need to make this much money, but I think I deserve this because of X, Y, and Z. Right? Like I took advantage of systems and structures for men. That again, like and bringing those things to God and letting him be the savior, like thinking about baptism, thinking about, um, you know, the communion, like doing the sacraments, I think helps, helps remind us of our humanity and, and remind us of God's altogether holiness. Um, but if you take those things away, you don't have contemplation because what's required for confession is actually reflection. You have to think about how, how we live our everyday. And most people don't do that. Um, whether it be people of faith or not, but we don't spend time reflecting on anything. And so you can begin to say something long enough and loud enough that people will begin to think it's true because we're not reflecting on it. We're just literally taking in information. So, you know, um, I think a really good example of that 
is like the Abraham Lincoln narrative of like like him wanting to set slaves free and seeing him as this great equalizer. And that's just that's just not historically true. And he didn't say any of those things. He wanted to send black people back to Africa. He did not believe that there would ever be a situation where integration would lead to a flourishing society. Like he was a white supremacist. Like we need, we actually, like we can't. So it's, it's just really interesting for me how people are mythologized. Like this happened with um, George H.W. Bush when he passed away. You know, there's, okay, what's going to be the, the story now? Or even as recent as Obama. Like the reality is like he deported a lot of people and and endorsed a lot of extrajudicial killings. Like we we actually have to, to wrestle with that. Um, but it is nicer to believe that this place is better than everywhere else. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there is a kind of like there's something natural. Like exceptionalism is something natural. You kind of everybody kind of likes to believe their culture, their family, their story, right, is the best and is special. But, but, but it when when that sort of innate thing becomes systemic and and it, it, this is a problem, right? And and, yeah. and part of this is what you're talking about. Like these, it's interesting. It's interesting because you talk about the, the myths like that we're a Christian nation, right? That that is. That that is something that just like you hear it on conservative cable, you know, talking points sort of things. And this is just sort of, you know, that, you know, when Trump came and he said, you know, we're going to be able to say Merry Christmas again and all that, you know, right. this is kind of, why, why do you think that myth is so important to, to, you know, we whitewash kind of this, a lot of the religious background of the founding fathers. We mm. sort of romanticize our own religious past, uh, covering up a lot of our sins. Why is it, why do we need a myth like that, you think? Well, I I think we need, and I, I want to like like hone on me. Like I think we need that. We um, need that because if that goes away, like if we actually began to pull the layer back, like I I don't think that people would be able to function. But I don't know for how long. And here's what I mean by that. So um, if we actually said that the land that we're on originally belonged to other people and every person is made in the image of God, worthy of like love, grace, and truth, and, and justice, if that's actually true, then I might have to do something about it. But manifest destiny, before that, doctrine of discovery, oh, let's like, actually, but Pope, like, Pope Nicholas V said that, like, we have to go out, right? And, you know, you can grab De Las Casas, you can grab Montesino, you can grab people from a long, long time ago, Augustine, and say, hey, like, this was a good thing. That's, I don't, I don't have to give up my pension. I don't have to, like, you, you mean that, like, the North wasn't better than the South? And, like, most of our wealth, like, came from 600,000 people a year being enslaved? Or, like, oh, Wilberforce, like, you know what? That's great. Like, what they did in the UK, but the UK stock exchange, like, still profited off of slavery and, Big cotton, even though they didn't do it anymore, we were still invested. Like we actually, that starts to to mess with our everyday life. And I think people, even my, myself included, we do not want to change. You know, we, we we we. I think we have a fundamental resistance to repentance, and not not just confessing with our mouths, and not just believing in our hearts, but like changing. Like, and I and I think that um, because the change would be so profound. We need a baptism of the heresy, which is why with each of these leaders, I think you see that baptism. So with um, uh, with Constantine, you have Eusebius, right? Like Eusebius right, changes church history and begins to, to write about him. Like with Thomas Jefferson, you had John Winthrop in Massachusetts. Like, And with Trump, you have a slew of pastors 
who are pursuing a celebrity and platform to to be a part of what he's doing. Um, yeah, what's interesting, this guy Jeffers, I, I just found this out. Oh, this <laughs> I, was, I was reading this book by historian John Fee, and he points out that Jeffers, this guy, I guess he's in Dallas, I think, yeah, right? Dallas. The, the make, he wrote the make, make America Great Again him and all that, you know. To, like two years before Trump's election, he wrote this book called Our Twilight's Last Gleaming. Mm-hmm. And in it, he says, you know, Luther says, you know, I'd rather have a Turkish or Muslim surgeon than a Christian butcher. And Luther's kind of saying, hey, you know, for the purposes of the, of the, of, of, of certain things, the state or this or that, like, I'd rather just have someone that's, that's, that's skilled in that, in that thing than a Christian who's not skilled in it. Right. So this guy, Jeffers is like, well, that's not good enough. We need people with a Christian worldview and every, and then two years later, he <laughs> supports Donald Trump. Like, so it's just amazing. Like I couldn't believe within two years, he's sort of saying Luther's wrong. We got to have these Christian Scholar intellects, right? That 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 we he becomes the chosen one. <laughs> really interesting. Well, I I think um, if I'm like to break down like you know the sin peace narrative, right? It's like what's the context? What's the people? Where they're from? What are the idols? Like what 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 is the what is him being brought up to the mountain and tempted? Right? Like what does he already have that the Republican machine can offer him? He says, "You know what? I don't have that. Let me go this way." And I and I do. Th- I just wrote a piece about climate change and like you know, does your pastor know who Greta Thunberg is? You know, um, and I have never been. Of course, there's a woman at the UN who said, "How dare you?" Exactly. Right. I lo- I just want to drop that in the podcast. It sounded like, like, "How dare you?" <laughs> it's true, right? Like the reality is, like we consistently choose profits over people every day particularly with the environment and the EPA, like with what's happening um, right now. So, I mean, something like 75 regulations have been removed like in the last two years. And yeah, anyway, um, but I've never had a conversation with a pastor that was okay with their church becoming smaller. Never, like never had a conversation with a pastor or a leader at a conference where the, the, the idea was like, this is how your church can not grow. But these are the risks we can take for the gospel. Like the emails that I get from Christianity Today and the, you know, all the little things we're subscribed to, how to help your church grow and da 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 right? Start up, uh, start up the podcast from Gimlet Media, did a church plan. And the pastor is both deeply believes that women should lead, deeply believes that want he wants like to figure out how to, to minister to the LGBTQ community. But he's afraid that if he talks about those things, he's gonna lose his grant money from whatever group. Right. Like that is that is fundamentally against like what we're supposed to be doing as pastors and leaders. Um, now, granted, I don't sit in a pastor's seat, um, but I do have to shepherd people who follow Jesus. And my my role like is definitely not to how to help them how to change gradually. My my hope is that I will help them be obedient to Jesus when he says to move. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think for Jeffress, for Billy Graham or for Billy Graham's kid, for Jay Falwell's kid, for like these people, the idea of being famous and powerful is much more attractive than being unknown. And um like when John Wesley says, like, use me or set me aside, I don't I don't I don't think that's in there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so yeah. When Ignatius when Ignatius talks about being indifferent to the result because Jesus God is God is God and Jesus is Lord. That's not, it's just not part of their, not part of their box. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just as solid, maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going, and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You talk about these myths that we're all immigrants and, and, and that the country is a melting pot. I mean, what it, you seem to suggest that like this idea that we're all immigrants tends to minimize the ways in which people came here, which people were advantaged, which ones were disadvantaged, which ones were forcibly brought here. I mean, this is like you talk about, I think what Ben Carson was like, you know, but it's like, I mean, I it's something about like. With slaves immigrated or like, yeah, like in the bottom stuff. of those ships was visions of a better life. Like, no, shut yeah. up. No, stop. I mean, but that's interesting. That's her narrative though, is you know, the, the we're all immigrants. It sounds very um egalitarian, right? Yeah. Like it sounds like great, we're all in the same, but but really it seems like you're saying it actually seems to paper over real differences about which groups came here, how and why, and some of the legacies of inequality that are a result of it. Right. Well, so what it does is it actually gives an answer to a traumatized people to tell their children when you do not want to talk about what's hard. So my grandmother-in-law has no desire to talk about like knowing what it's like to, to smell burning flesh in North Korea. Just no desire to talk about that. Right. Like my wife had to have an assignment, sit down with a recorder, hound her, and then have her talk about what it was like to be an orphan at 12 years old when your whole family's been murdered, right? Like that, like that is not uh, a desire for an immigrant to talk about. So if we just say, don't worry about that, this is our story now, it provides, I think, a helpful, uh, a helpful narrative that's deeply oppressive. To, to paint over a history that we need to talk about. Like black folks, like my family, the only reason we talked about race was when it was a warning, right? Like that's the only reason it came up. We don't want to talk about the police. We don't want to talk about the the issues that happened to my mom being like a Negra on her birth certificate or what it was like to go to a basketball game in high school and someone black scores a basket and they don't move the scoreboard because they don't want the white team to lose, right? Like that's that's not what we want to talk about. And so the idea that like 
we all have a fair shot. It's just honestly a nicer thing to talk about than like, and I, and I think we, that's where I think emotional health and a value for our emotional lives um, is deeply important um, because um, it is, if we say we're all immigrants, I don't have to deal with my oppression or how I've been oppressed and neither do people upstream from my oppression. And so it's a, it's a falsely liberating thing, which is why like, you know, you get out of prison to put on golden handcuffs. Like it's not, it's not, it's not freedom to live outside of reality, you know? Yeah. And this idea of the melting pot, it, it, it's interesting because you see that's another lie or another kind of myth we tell ourselves that, that and, and is this because like, actually, you know, the idea is that people come here and they assimilate and, and, and you know, it, you, it's yeah. a challenge first, but, you, but the reality is right. Like some people have an easier time assimilating or are allowed to assimilate or allowed to, you know, that, that it's not, it's not just uh, one pot everybody jumps into that, 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 and, and you, it, we all, we all sort of, and when you're allowed to assimilate, you're allowed to assimilate to sort of a kind of majority reality. I mean, these things are, it's another one of these things that makes it sound like the, the playing field is, is more level than it is. Right. Right. And I mean, I think there's two things that happen in every chapter. Um, one is like, he, Hey, this is how this just isn't true in reality. Right. And then it's also like, Hey, this isn't actually what Jesus calls us to, right? It's because that you, it's not just we that we have to like, you know, get out of alternative facts and like fake news to like what's actually being there, but that even what's really there sometimes isn't what Jesus intended. So even if it was e pluribus unum, like out of many, one, that's not Jesus's prayer, you know, in John seventeen, eighteen, nineteen for the church. Like it's, that's not it. Right. So it, it sounds really good to say like, we will become a people who are set apart, who are the hope for the world, who have crossed this great, that this is from John Winthrop sermon. Like we cross this vast sea pulling out Deut- Deuteronomy 30 to become this set apart people. Like that would be great if it wasn't heresy. It sounds great, but that's not, that's not what God intended because Acts 1, 8 is fundamentally against what he's preaching on the shores of the Bay in Massachusetts, right? So the melting pot that we're all supposed to melt into is actually we're supposed to step into the kingdom of God. That's what's supposed to happen. That's the melting pot. But again, it's like, well, does Jesus want us to be a melting pot? Well, actually, I don't think so. I think what he actually wants us to become is one family, full-on reflective of who he has called us to be, which means I don't melt into anything, but I have an identity that's been given to me and I actually step into that. So I become more fully of who I am when I get to know God. Um, I don't become more like everyone else, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I think of like Augustine in the City of God writing, you know, that, hey, the, Rome, is not, Rome is not the city of God. It's the city of the world. And all of us are, 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 are pilgrims. And so, you know, and, and it's, it's not wrong to seek the peace of the, I mean, Jeremiah 29, right. seek the shalom of, of Babylon. But, but realize we're seeking, it's not the city of God. It's, right. it's, it's the earthly city, which, you know, we, we can seek the peace of it but also be critical of it. And, ought to, and that right. innately our open first stance of any earthly city ought to be, there's probably going to be a lot to, that we ought to find critical, critically problematic. Right. And that doesn't mean we can't be citizens that also try to be loving in the midst of it, but, but we should pretty be, we should be open to the fact that it's not going to be identified with the kingdom of God or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so some of what you're saying, right. Like goes fundamentally against things we hear on TV every day or how we're raised. So if you said, you just said, I can criticize you and love you. I can criticize you and think you're great. 
Like, I wasn't raised to think that. Like, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all, right? And so when my wife wants to tell me something about how I need to grow, my initial reaction is like, why Why are you always telling me how I need to change and grow, right? And like, I think we have a resistance to change because we don't know, we we don't believe that we can be broken and lovable. Like, I, I, Jonathan Walton, personally, relationally, systemically, can be broken and loved by God and loved by people. I, just, I got work to do, right? And I think in our culture, like when I sit down with students or you know, increasingly adults, it's like, tell me something you need to work on, right? They don't we don't want to admit weaknesses or growth edges or things like that? Can, we don't want to confess. We don't want to repent. We don't want to engage. Um, not knowing that on the other side of that confess. All on the other side of that confession, there's actually blessing and acceptance in Jesus. Um, but our culture increasingly does know how to do it with cancel culture and stuff like that. Cancel culture being like, if I did something bad, don't buy any more of my albums, burn my books in the street, take my platform away, stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The slacktiv- it's kind of slacktivism, right? The virtue signaling, the cancel culture. It's also It often is a way to avoid what you're talking about, the real deep messiness of of brokenness grace change it's just well we'll just you know we excise people we just kind of you know like the virtue signal it's it it, 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 it's it's interesting my friend david zoll wrote this book seculosity and it's basically Mm -hmm. he talks about how we've just replaced traditional religion with like the gym or parenting or politics and it's just you know it's all these are all self-justification projects like how we make a sense of ourselves like you know if i can just be the perfect parent or if I can eat the perfect, you know, if you'd be the perfect foodie or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and it seems like what you're talking about in this book is group self-justification projects. Like, yeah. hey, we can say, we, you know, we don't really need to be justified by God and Christ with all of our messiness. We can tell a story where we're, we're justified by, you know, being part of this American mythical dream and, 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 and story. And that, that sort of serves as our religion. Yeah. And if we like, really specific it's like race-based class-based gender-based hierarchy like i will carve out my niche and i'll know who's above me that i will catch i don't know who who's below me that i will not deal with unless i have to um and even if we have to most of us would rather move out than engage so yeah you also talk about the the idea of the american dream being alive and well and and i mean this is Especially yeah. the past several decades, right? Like we've right. seen. I mean, somebody said that, that I, I've heard several economists say that we haven't had this much, this degree of income inequality since like the Great Depression, like where yeah. where everything just all the money is just drifting to the yeah. to the top further and further. And so, yeah. but yet amidst that, we still like cling to this idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like because it, is it because it makes us seem like you know it's a. Uh, John John Oliver said his show, you know, it's like the lottery, right? Like, right. you know, it's like we we think he's like, why do we do all these shows on the on the uh, news segments and what to do if you win the lottery? He's like, you'd rather you better have it. You'd rather have a show like, what should you say on your third day date with Beyonce? I mean, like, right. he's like, <laughs> but, but he's like, but it's just like we love it because it's like people know well the system's rigged, but that's what's going to make it even better when I win. You know, right. like I mean, right. it's 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 interesting that we that even people that don't benefit from the way the income is being distributed, defend the idea that it's that that it's a, that it, we still have the American dream. Yeah, well, I so I think hegemony is really interesting, right? Where people who are oppressed and marginalized become the people who enforce their own oppression and marginalization. And so we see this with um, we see this with women. 
who police other women in speaking out about sexual assault, right? A man doesn't have to say, I don't believe you. A woman will do it, right? We see this with um, people of color in America who reinforce colorism and racism and um, but in the ways we talk about one another, right? Um, I, and so I do believe that there's a, there's a cultural hegemony around the American dream where like it may be absolutely true that the wealth inequality has not been at levels that it is since the Great Depression. Like it is true, like the top 0.1% have taken, I think like something like 40 to 50% of all GDP growth since the, the Great Recession, right? Um, it is like, it's absolutely true that like the, like, I think it's something like the top 1% own more than the bottom 70% of Americans in wealth, right? Like if, even if those things are true, um, the, the ethos and the air, I think the, the metaphor I use in the, in the book is, is the air we breathe, right? Like 20, 17 to 20% of the air that we breathe is actually oxygen, right? The rest is just mostly nitrogen and other stuff, but you can't tell someone that like hard work is oxygen and and the system is actually the rest of the air because what that does it then it gets at all the identity pieces and stuff like that and i think what happens is we need to be a part of the quote unquote best system so someone can say we have the best healthcare in the world and we know we don't but we'll say it and believe it because we have to right education um even banks, like the, the largest banks in the world are in China. The top six banks, five are in China, one is in Tokyo. The seventh largest bank is Merrill Lynch, right? So we're not even like ahead in that, but you couldn't tell Americans that that's reality. And again, I think three things or two things happen in the chapter. It's not true in reality and it's not what, what God intended, you know, so. Yeah, as you talk about God, it's interesting that, that, that God deals particularly. It's it never and often isn't fair, like the prodigal son. I mean, yeah. so, so it's these kind of uh, it, it's 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 the people that show up at the last hour getting the same as the people that worked all day. And these stories, right. like yes, that even if if we were the ideal we thought we were, even then it would still be something that like you know that Jesus tells stories that seem to subvert. Uh, right, and I love I love this G or you know. Jesus, God, Trinity response to the the angry person who worked all day. He said, are you upset that I decided to be compassionate with my money, right? Like what, like, what, like, I don't want to say like balls. I can't think of a better word. Um, but like, you know, the, 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 in, the internal fortitude to come to a quote unquote manager and say, I don't think you should pay that person this way. Right. And we do that to God all the time. Don't bless them. These people aren't people. Right. We, we, yeah, there's whole histories about that. So, yeah. And you also challenge, you think that we have to tell ourselves this lie that we're this great, vibrant democracy. And that, oh, yeah. um, that, that, like, that you said, like, this is just on face value. Like, we have low voter turnout. We have all sorts of voter suppression. We have all sorts of systems built in that seem to, like, uh, advantage certain people and disadvantage others. And yet we, it, it, but yet we have to still tell ourselves we're, you know, we're in a great democracy. Why, why do we need that myth? Yeah. That well, so all the lies build on each other, right? So, the Christian nation kind of lays out like, okay, this is the ethos. This is the big idea. But then you have to figure out, okay, how can I define my identity and the worth of other people? So you've got melting pot, you've got we're all equal, stuff like that. But then you have to say, okay, well, if we're all like that, then how do I deal with power, right? And democracy, even though there's nothing 
in our documents that calls us a democracy. Like nothing. Um, and the quote-unquote founding fathers were actually against democracy, particularly Hamilton and Madison. Um, we have to give people the illusion of access to power. Have to. Otherwise, there'll be revolution. So if I can pacify enough people, and I believe that the most pacified group in America is white people. Like poor, rural white people are the most pacified group in the world where they believe that like they will literally vote against their against their own interests. Right. And Dying of Whiteness. Uh, have you read that book? Um, no, no, I haven't read Dying of Whiteness. Dying of Whiteness is a book by a Jewish immigrant that lived in Kansas City and he saw his community change. But he writes about Kentucky and Tennessee and them voting for Obamacare and voting against Obamacare. And Tennessee, I believe, voted for it and Kentucky voted against it. And literally the life expectancy of rural poor white people went down because they did not have access to the health care that they needed. And so he you know, has interviews with people and conversations with people and people are less willing to, quote unquote, betray their tribe than to have health care. Right. And I, and I think we need like the, the idea that this that white supremacy benefits anyone or when you when you um, consolidate power that, that benefits anyone is a lie. Like when you do injustice, you do not benefit yourself. Right. But we believe that we believe that if I just keep amassing for myself, then actually I'll get get better. And that that's that's just not that's not true in the kingdom of God, because to give is is actually better than to receive in the kingdom. Um, so, but we, we need the myth of democracy and access to power to actually pacify revolutionary populations. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's interesting because you like, they've done some stuff when that guy, uh, Howard Schultz was looking at running for president, he's sort of saying he's kind of like socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. Right. But mm -hmm. that's, there's so little of the electorate that's actually like that. They all ride right. the Acela in the Northeast. Like, but, yes. <laughs> but the, there's a big group in the electorate that are socially liberal and sort of economically, politically liberal. There's another group that are culturally conservative and socially and and economically and politically uh, conservative. Then there's this big group that are culturally conservative, but they're economically and politically liberal, right? A lot of these people that are the dying away thing. But then it's interesting because the because it seems like what happens is you get them to choose the, the conservative values over the government intervening to make their lives better. Exactly. Because because if you look at the lies, right? Like so if if the the bedrock of um, white American folk religion is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Every person, like personal responsibility, personal, uh, like institutions are bad. Like, like if, if that, if that's the core, like it's just me and I've got to work hard and do me and do mine and get mine for me and my people. If that's the reality, then everything that comes after that is less, right? Which is why, um, when Stacey Abrams is running in Georgia, you can have a robocall or you can have a Facebook blitz to get people afraid. And they, it won't matter how much preparation was done and how many workshops they went to and town halls they listened to. At the end of the day, they're going to be like, well, I don't know if I can trust her. That's yeah, this is, this is the, they've done all these studies, right? Like, even just look at the news recently, this whole thing with Ukraine and, and how Trump and the talking points kind of, you know, the, the state media kind of stuff, like kind of, yeah. uh, it gets half the country to believe stuff that's just not true about right what you know, Joe Biden and the you know like he he like th th this didn't have anything to do with his son and this firing of this prosecutor but 
people just and, and there are all these studies that show like it takes a lot once you get a false claim in the in news it takes like a lot more of the truth to dispel like it just gets in there and lodges yeah. in there right yeah and this is why these these lies work right if you just tell them enough right right if you just get people to recite them and, and you, you get the, the you get the stories told in textbooks and and even again you, like people that are uh would see themselves as very kind of open-minded and forward-thinking will embrace these these kind of lies you're telling that's not a it's not just a partisan thing right i right. mean these things it's an Amer- so that's i mean it's it's sort of like it's so hard to dispel them right because they're just out there and, and they keep getting circulated. It's it's right. like trying to think about the air you're breathing or, or a fish thinking about the water it swims in. Right. So like, for example, um, like neoliberalism or liberalism, right? Um, and not like conservative versus liberal, like the ideology of liberalism, um, which I think <laughs> most of our population thinks liberalism is just about like being liberal. Right, right. You're talking about this turn that sort of said more and more like we see that free markets are the answer to most of our problems, that more more free market. And it's not that we don't use the government and have, have a safe net and stuff, but more and more that that, that the market does best right. and, and does the best for and the most for the most people. Exactly. So the market becomes the force for good in liberalism. And so we see this with the first Clinton administration. So the first Clinton administration, he came in like wanting to do quote unquote, Hillary care, wanted to do education, like wanted to do all these things. But then the banks were like, we're not going to, I guess not going to happen. We're not going to let you do that. Right. And so you see him slowly and every, he was the first one, I think, but every treasury secretary has been from Goldman Sachs ever since. Right. He did not put in healthcare the way he wanted to. Instead, he actually created what we now know as mass incarceration, right? Like there's, there's all these things that he came in with, but the the quote unquote liberal machine, neoliberal machine, like actually changed that, and that's actually been, I think, the predominant ideology which has driven the um, the economic inequality, right? So if you mix that with Reaganomics from twenty five years before, which is I think a backlash to the gains by women and people of color in America, right? Then you mix that with the the suppression of unions and the more like quote unquote right to work states and like if you look at those things you're taking away money from education you're taking away money from social programs it's such great it's such great messaging right right to work yeah right if you're going to be against the right to work i'm against the right to work you should, you know, it, it's it, it's 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 one of these things that's like such a great it's marketing it, 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 yeah it's great marketing yeah and like i literally have friends who they you know are like the term collateral damage right? Like collateral damage means people dying. That's what it means. But if you say that, people will be like, well, let's go to war. You know, like it's, there's a, there's a fundamental, I think, change in language. And so overlay the things that I just talk about with um, the change in media, right? You know, uh, I think Jerry Springer, Oliver North, like that type of, um, I'm trying to remember who the first person was. I can't right now, but um, there was a there was a TV commentator like because pundits didn't used to be on TV the way they are now, but it started in the late '80s. And so, if you overlay that with this 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 this, this ecosystem of um, polarization, liberalism, and the control of powerful places by one ideology, then you end up where we're at right now, where you can have a population of people that believes that something is good for them simply because it feels really good. So that's like one myth to take away, 
right? But then you actually have to say that that's actually not the gospel then. Because the answer to the brokenness that we have right now is not democratic socialism. We could do that, but it's not the answer. The answer is Jesus. Like we we could reform our democratic structures. We could do redemptive justice in our prison system. We could like expunge records and give people the rights that they actually deserve. We could do that, but that still would not be Revelation 21, which is I think the two steps that the church has to make where so yeah yeah it's interesting my my friend and actually mentor of mine paul zo wrote this book called grace and practice and he said what would grace and politics look like and he said i think if i'm honest it would look like um a non-utopian welfare state like but he said i say non-utopian because it would have this generosity for people that have that have need right we right. just our fundamental thing would be grace you know and and and, and and trying to be generous and yet non-utopian because you think we're not going to solve all the world's problems right with government programs we can have better or worse government programs but but the non-utopian thing he thought was key that you don't right. you don't think because because once you have that non-utopian idea then it gets harder to to sell these cultural lies you're talking about right because right. that's that if you see america as just one other uh piece in the cultural historical story with it's got some good things going for it and some sinful bad broken things and just like every other kind of thing and you know it's but but it's that sort of utopian idea the city on the hill when, once you get that you have the foundation to start telling the lies telling them is spinning them and keep them going right right which is why i think you know the first lie is we're a christian nation because the reality is i think every ideology and i think we see this in um see this in russia we see this in china saw this in the uk like you have when you have a leader we have an ideology you have to create an environment and an ethos around them as something otherworldly. Like we still deify leaders, right? Like I think it's a powerful thing to understand. Like we are electing representatives in government. We are not electing pastors and prophets. Like we're not electing shepherds, you know, for flock. These are not people who have been anointed by God to lead people and point to his kingdom. These are people in government, right? Um, but I think it's more powerful to elect people to lead us spiritually than it is to lead us practically, which, because I'm not, why would I get up in the morning early, stay in line and vote for someone who I thought was going to fix the roads? But if I vote for someone who's going to like fundamentally change X, Y, and Z or keep things, but it, we, we need that. Cause I think emotionally us, it gets you going. Yeah, all of us are in desperate need of a Messiah. I heard uh, Tim Keller, actually, we've, you talk about him in your book, he's a prominent kind of pastor in New York. He was on Morning Joe a couple of years ago, and this one of the commentators asked him, "What do you do about uh, tribalization, demonization?" And he had a really interesting answer. He said, "Well, I think it relates to to idolizing." He says, "When you have idols, you have to demonize. So if you right. think the market's the savior, you have to demonize government. Or if you think that social democratic socialism is is the idol, then you have to demonize the market. If you have to, everybody has to." If once you start making idols, you have to make demons, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't because it's 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 in the real the, the sort of realistic lens of ambiguity, which you know everything is. You know, there's signs of sin, promise, you know, darkness, mm -hmm. light, all that. That doesn't that doesn't make well for these myths and lie. You know, it, it, but it's 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 when we sort of uh, idolize that, that the flip side of demonizing almost always happens, right? Right. So uh, Dr. Robert Mulholland, he passed away a couple of years ago, but I got to hear him speak, went through his book with my, my father-in-law who was dying of cancer. And something that I thought was really powerful in reading books with people who were dying, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's like things become really clear when you're not going to be here that long, you know? Um, and something in the book, 
the, the premise is like we all have false selves, right? The false selves we project. And when we project a false self, there's things that come after that. And you project a false self, then you have to um, amass things to, to, to keep that false self going. And if you've amassed things, then you actually have to protect and defend them, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so if my idol is X, like let's say my idol is America, and I have to build things, like we have to, we have to look a certain way, project this image, and then you actually have to protect that image. And what actually comes after that is if you have built up an arsenal, you're much more likely to attack. And what usually happens is you have someone sitting and watching a YouTube clip or listening to a podcast and they go down the rabbit hole and all of a sudden they believe a race war is going to happen. All of a sudden they believe like, you know, like I, I, I am under siege. Like this happens with me with police, right? I, Jonathan Walton, have never had an interaction with the police that was violent ever. Even at protests that I've been a part of and led, I've never had that. But I am terrified of people in uniform, right? Because of the the constant barrage of images, the constant barrage of video. So it actually takes, I think, and this goes back to the discipleship piece, what my diet is, like how much how much love do I have to get to be able to love someone who I believe hates me, right? Like how like they, I that's why I think there has to be a fundamental reorientation, which is why that last lie of like, or it might be like not a number of we're one nation, right? When if I believe I'm part of the family of God, we have different rules, different structures, different ways of operating in the world. And those are fundamentally different than the typical quote unquote most patriotic American. Um and that's that's why I think, you know, towards the end of the book, like my um, you know, talking through Psalm twenty Psalm twenty seven and um just the engagement with what it would be like to be the family of Jesus, as opposed to like leave it to Beaver. I think there's a there's some powerful prophetic things that Jesus has to say to us about what our family should look like and what we are striving for as 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 His body, His family in the world. Well, yeah, I'll tell you, you've written a great book, and I, I think it 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 helps expo- it, it it helps expose sort of people to the truth. You know about our nation, but also about ourselves. So I think that anybody would, who would like to know uh, not just more about the kind of strange foundations of the country, but just also about yourself. Uh, it's a great book and thanks for writing it and thanks for talking with me about it. Yeah, no problem. I really hope that yeah, folks who read it are able to, to get a group of people together who are different from them and go through the questions and, and engage. Um, I'm really looking forward to good conversations for a long time. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jonathan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.